Hey guys, welcome to episode 11 of the TLDR podcast. Today we have Cam Kittle, our uh, next guest on the show. Cam is a man of wisdom. He's very well read, uh, has a lot of knowledge in a lot of different areas um, and prides himself on such. Uh, it's quite a long podcast, but we do go down some pretty curious and interesting uh, topics. So uh, don't want to give it too much away, but tune in and enjoy. Cameron, how are you, mate? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, going really well. Tom, Cam, Cam, Tom. If you haven't hey, mate, met nice already, I'm, I'm pointing. If you're nice watching on you. YouTube, um, as like a bit of a bit of a plug, bit of a segue, we're up on YouTube. If that's how you like to ingest your podcast information, um, I'm pretty emotive, I suppose, and I'm like a bit up and about, and use my hands a lot when I'm telling stories, and I don't know what what Cameron's like, but Tom actually just like sits there literally like a statue. Um, so <laughs> if you're going to watch actually the, you inter- can't see them. I'm very, the, uh, yeah, true. So the camera's a little higher up. The last one higher. was literally all me. <laughs> I know how good I, I may, have, may have messed up the recording there, but this one won't be. So was- if anyone wants just to look at Luke for a good hour or so, um, either do one of his sessions um, in which way I'm you can pay for it. Otherwise just jump on YouTube, which is free and you can just stare at him. We're not, well, that's not really a massive selling point, but um, the views yeah, are going to go through oh, the mate, roof. We could double, we could double from two to four views. Who knows? Is this uh, episode 11? It is. It is. It's crazy. That's crazy. It's flying by. And, uh, and I feel like they're just getting better, to be honest. Maybe that's a little biased opinion, but it, um, I, I rewatched episode 10, and that's how I know that it was just me for an hour and a half or whatever <laughs> it was. And I was mortified. <laughs> I didn't realize that's what I, like, my resting face is just, something else so uh let's try and get a little bit more of the other that'll, the that'll other be results that's result but anyway cam thanks for jumping on thanks for joining us um, thanks for having me man of course I've, I've heard um a lot about you probably in the last month or so just in <laughs> regards to how uh learned you are and well researched and uh possibly having some different standard beliefs maybe than the general society and uh, all backed up by your own uh research i guess so um I don't know where you want to maybe give a, a brief on yourself, but I definitely have some questions. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Like, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this of how would I kind of explain myself coming onto it? Cause I've never done a podcast before. Um, and I guess like uh, the foundational relationship of me and Luke is through fitness, you know, like yeah. I've probably come to this more as like a XPT fitnessy kind of guy. I've had experience in um, competition with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, bits and pieces of other stuff I kind of dabbled in a lot of stuff but I guess that's kind of like that's my background you know I'm like a, a health and wellness guy I had a personal training business for a few years and I met Luke through the institute mm-hmm. um, but I've done other stuff like my journey into fitness in the first place was because I was like massively overweight um, I, I was 137 kilos at my biggest yeah. when I was 19 and, um, and within a year, I'd like, uh, I grew up in the country and I'd moved to Adelaide to pursue um, like mixed martial arts and jujitsu. And within a year, I dropped down to 67 kilos. So I had this real like insane year, an insane period of growth. And that's kind of where my journey really started. Um, Dude, I've that's done other 60 stuff kilos this. in a year. How did, how did you like so many physiological changes that would have taken place? What oh. like... I'm speechless. Temporarily insane. I went mental, man. I really um, like, um, I was in a bad way. You know? I was mm. not 
I was not doing well at that point in my life. And I had a few pivotal things happen that really changed it. And I just made a deal with myself one day of like, if not now, when, you know, I'd, I'd jump on the scales um, and I'd see it go from like 90 to 100 and then 100 to 105 and 100 to 110. And then all of a sudden it was kind of like, you know, if I don't make some sort of drastic change mm. now, when's it going to happen? You know, when am I going to change? Um, so I just made a deal with myself and I got a gym membership on um, New Year's Day and I went and I got on a treadmill and I ran 300 meters and pukes. And <laughs> I remember just being Gnarly. like, no, like, yeah, I'm going to run 10 kilometers every, every single day. You know, I just made this deal with myself. I'll always do it. And I did like, uh, I was just, I just forced myself. I was, I was brutal with myself, man. And um, I ran until I had shin splints and stress fractures and I would train three hours every single day. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know? <laughs> I was just like completely useless. I think my workout for the first like year was to just run 10 kilometers and do military press, you know, but I just kind of like, actually run 10 Ks a day. Yeah. Yeah. I ran 10 Ks every day until I couldn't run because my, my shins were just destroyed, you yeah. know? And I was like, uh, I just forced myself to do it. I was running in like globe skate shoes because I had no idea. I had no friends that were into training. And it was like the early days of the internet, you know, well, not the early days, but early days in terms of like um, health and fitness. There's no like influences and stuff like that. So I was just kind of like working it out as I went. And um, yeah, yeah, I got involved with boxing and judo and other bits and pieces later on down the track. And that's kind of where it all started for me. That's, like that's, a, I was going to say modern day Goggins, but Goggins is kind of is modern day. He's modern day. The, uh, the, the OG. Australian. The Goggins. Yeah. yeah. You inspired that. That's David. crazy. Where did you draw that? That must have been, oh, you used the term pivotal. That must have been such a pivotal moment for you. How do you stay consistent with that? Because I'm sure if you're, if you're overweight like that, I'm sure that you're not, well, you were obviously highly motivated but maintaining that level of motivation must've been challenging. Like you're getting injured, you've got shin splints. Like, Oh yeah. It's, that must've been tough. It's like mentally exhausting, you know, even when they talk about like uh, the, you know, like the Bulgarian method where they took the guys and they did their max every day for yeah. however long, like the burnout was mental. It wasn't physical. It was mental. Like you can really push your body far beyond any capacity that you really think you have, mm-hmm. but it's like the mental burnout. But at, at the time, you know, like a, uh, like, I, and I really love Goggins, you know, like I didn't find Goggins until he became like big Goggins, but going back and like listening to his audio book and stuff like that, it's like, wow, we had a really similar mentality. Mm. And um, I, I was dark, man, you know, I got super, super dark. I was, I had a really bizarre lifestyle because I was in the country and I was, um, I was like teaching music during the day, but I was so embarrassed to go to the gym during the day i would go at two in the morning because it was like one of the only 24-hour gyms there and they let me have um like uh the pa so i'd come and i put on the same like hate breed album because i was just this angry (laughs) you know teenager and i I would just i would just get into it man i just really like i don't think i'd be able to find that level of motivation ever again it's always been something that like uh i've never quite reached that same sort of level Mm -hmm. of intensity but it's probably a good thing as well yeah and like it's not good to just destroy yourself and go that like that level of intensity is making up for a massive deficit in terms of knowledge you know so yeah that's like something that i've definitely balanced out over time 
But uh, yeah, I was highly motivated, highly motivated by my life, things that had happened to me. And I just couldn't live that way anymore. You know, you get to the point where it's like the, the pain of the sacrifice and the pain of what you're putting yourself through is kind of easier than if you were just going to stay the other way. Yeah, for sure. Mm. In terms of like, so you did the physical stuff, you did the 10K and the 10K day and military press, love it. Um, that's, <laughs> that's lower body, upper body balance workout. That's so well rounded. Um, what other things did you find that like, Took, I didn't know we were going to have this conversation. This is unreal, first of all. Um, what other things did you find that happened over that journey, be it nutrition, um, things that you, you wanted to forego because of this passion and this mental desire to improve your physical ability or physical aesthetic? Um, yeah, what sort of things did you layer in? Like, was there a nutrition component or was it just case, okay, no, nah, I just need to move every day and I can keep doing what I'm doing? Or was it like, how did that side of it go outside of the gym, gym? Oh, but I didn't know anything about nutrition, you know, like yeah. I probably made it three times as hard for myself just by not having that kind of knowledge there. And there yeah. were other like factors, like I used to smoke and I used to drink and stuff like that when I was mm. younger, because growing up in the country is very much like parties, you know, there's yeah. just nothing else happening. Um, so I like, I'd stopped all of that sort of stuff, but I had no idea about diet or nutrition or anything like that i just went super hard because i thought that's what you did yeah like i thought you just turned up at the gym and you trained and eventually you would kind of lose weight like i don't mm. think i even really had any concept of like calories in versus calories out like if you yeah. asked me what a macro was i would have had no idea uh, but did but you, i was did... just highly motivated by lifestyle factors i guess so was there any change like or was it a case of i just you literally just kept consuming the same things but just trained um, I definitely thought like I, I did what I thought was healthier, you know, yeah. in terms of just like eating more fruit and vegetables and stuff like that. But um, it was like in hindsight, you know, it was really stupid. It was kind of useless. Like, um, but I kind of just pushed through it. I pushed, I think um, I, I got to like 83 kilos before I even sought more information on diet and stuff like that. I was just really you lost 50 kilos by that point. Yeah, yeah, roughly, yeah. It's crazy. That's crazy. So, wow. yeah, I mean, like, how do you maintain that level of motivation? Like, at some point, you must have been like, all right, I'm less than 100 now. Like, time to hang up the boots. Like, I'm sick of this daily grind. Or you just, like, you had an end goal and you were just going to, it was do or die. I had an end goal. I had two, two highly motivating factors. Um, the first one was uh, one of my best friends died. Um, and he was like, a very special person, like a super magical person. His name was um, uh, Matthew Duncan. And I think about this guy all the time. Um, uh, he was just so talented, man. Like uh, he was a skater. I met him through skating. I used to skate when I was younger. And um, he rode motocross and rode BMX and stuff like that. And he, there was this kind of like local, what would you say, like folklore, I guess, about this guy of being the first dude to do a flare in the half pipe in Port Augusta. And he was a sponsored motocross rider. He was just like amazing guy, you know, and he was raised with the, like these values by his dad, Jimmy, to just like seek knowledge firsthand. And I remember I was skating in the town one day and he came up to me and said like, oh, hey, everyone doesn't like you, man. So I just wanted to find out why. And we were just immediately like best friends at this point, <laughs> you know, and he was like um, a real, like I idolized this guy. And he was, he was 21 when I met him. And I was 16 mm -hmm. and he was, he was like this real first kind of like mentor that I had of just intensity, you know, he just had this intensity with life. Like I remember seeing him um, 
kickflip a nine stair. And for me at that point in my life, it was like, this guy's a God, you know, <laughs> it's insane. Mm. And, um, and he couldn't land it and he kept trying and trying and trying. And then after he got it, he had a broken ankle. And I remember being like, wow, this guy did this with a broken ankle. He was just like a, this insane person. And um, yeah, he died in a car accident and um, I was at his funeral. And I just remember thinking like, man, you know, this, there was hundreds of people there. You know, this guy was really influential and everyone loved him. Everyone admired this guy. And I remember thinking like, you know, like he's gone and I'm just like squandering my life, you know, like he's had all these opportunities and he's lost everything. And here I am, like, I could have done so much more by this point and I've just kind of wasted it. And it was highly motivating for me. Like I, I drove from the funeral to the gym and got a gym membership. And then it was like two days later that I started training. And uh, the other thing was that this is like 2007 or 2008. And there was a box set of the ultimate fighter at sanity, like the DVD and CD store. Yeah. And it was like season one, ultimate fighter, like way, way back. And I, yeah, Forrest Griffin. Yeah. Forrest Griffin. That was sick. That was such a good season, man. And like i was like i'd never really seen anything like mm. this before because it wasn't around you know like they really set the stage for all this sort of stuff so i remember like binge watching this uh like the whole thing and being like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna i'm gonna move away and do this stuff and like back then no one even knew what, like i remember talking to people about mixed martial arts and they'd be like what's that and back then you were trying to explain like, oh it's like cage fighting you know it was super lame, yeah. but um, I just like, I was obsessed with it. And I like went and joined the boxing club, went and joined the judo club. And I just was hooked, you know, like mm. I was training every single day. I was going to the boxing club every day. I was going to the judo club, like four nights a week or something like that. And but, like those two things really had just set me on the path. And if I look back, it's like the intensity that Maddie had really was a huge influence for me of just like, going hard all the time which i don't think is the good thing to do now but at the time it was a huge motivating factor so how, how old were I mean, you obviously it really worked sorry tom sorry how old were you when, when um, you went through that 70 kilo weight loss 19 Jeez. formative yeah. years that's unreal yeah that's crazy yeah yeah it was really insane man and i kind of like i'd gone through this picture because I was living in the country and I was really isolated. Like I didn't have many friends. And because I quit drinking and wanted to live a better life, all of my friends kind of wrote me off. So Mm. I just had this whole year of kind of like extreme isolation (laughs) and just going super hard. And then all of a sudden I was like this still a kid, you know, like in the city living by myself, uh, training jujitsu six days a week. And like, it was just, it was an insane change. And I remember being like looking around, like, wow, a year ago, this was like really different. Mm. What do you think the hook was for you for martial arts? Was it as a young dude, you've had some trauma with your friend dying, like your idol with your friends, like casting you away. Do you think that it was a way of venting or like getting some aggression out? Or do you think it was just like the stars aligned and this was just a new obsession for you? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, um, I'm, I'm a pretty open person. You know? So like, I, I went through a lot of stuff when I was younger. It's not like I had this like, uh, awful life or anything. Like I, I had a really like good upbringing. I came from a good family, but from like at the same time from a broken home and like without a male role model or anything like that, 
And um, I had a lot of trauma, man. Like I got, um, I got really viciously beaten a couple of times when I was, um, when I was younger, when I was 16. And then again, when I was 18, it was pretty hectic, you know, like, um, and I think it was just my way of kind of dealing with that sort of stuff and trying to, I guess, come to terms with my own sense of masculinity, I guess, mm -hmm. in some sort of way. Not that I think that that thing, like that masculinity and martial arts are deeply entwined in any sense, but I think it's pretty common, especially living in a society where there's no real rite of passage. I think there's so many young guys who get involved with that sort of stuff because they're looking for it. You know, there's no sense of, um, what's the word, initiation. And there's a lot of good books written on this, like, and this is how I understand it now, is that um, there's no rite of passage which takes us from our, like, teenage formative years through to like all right you're a man now um and i think there's so many young guys throw themselves into martial arts and that's probably what i was doing kind of like trying to work through my own unresolved trauma from all this stuff that happened to me and this kind of bizarro lifestyle that i had growing up and um i was hooked on it you know i was i was hooked because of that i think it gave me a sense of myself and something to identify with so you weren't consciously making that decision to be like, all right, I need to find some form of initiation into adulthood here. No. It was like, this is a post-reflection, post I'm assuming. Looking back on it, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that I had gone through these things. And you and I have talked at length about what your environment has been like and, and how that kind of creates you as a person. It, it makes a lot of sense in, in reflection that that's what you were seeking, but you weren't thinking about it at the time. It was just like kind of lucky that that's what you fell into. Yeah, I don't think I even had like any understanding of what that would be. Like if you asked me what initiation was, I don't think I would have any um, concept of that, you know. But I think it's a deep archetypal like substructure of the human psyche that so many guys are deeply searching for because the closest thing we have is kind of like drinking at the pubs with your mates, which is really like not it at all, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think we're like at the time I could look around and see so many guys were looking for that, even through like the skating and the BMX and stuff like that. I think that's what that is. You know, I think that's why so many people are drawn towards that as a kind of individuating process. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it wouldn't, I mean, in Western culture, it's not so definitive. It seems like you, you go out and you fend for yourself for a week. And if you live, then congratulations, you're a man now. It just seems like it's kind of it it like it's like a slow grind and then eventually you wake up and you're like oh my god i'm an adult now like what mm. i've got a nine to five job and you know and and people kind of like you're not necessarily like the youngest in the group anymore and it's like oh okay like i'm an adult now there's no real very definitive point of going from childhood to adulthood and it's uh and i, I think a lot of people miss out on that a lot of men miss out on that um and as three dudes i guess we can talk more on on being men than being women obviously so can you talk on that maybe like what do you see is the downfall of not having that really definitive initiation into like becoming a man um i guess uh like we don't have a real well this is just what i think anyway that we okay. don't have a real sense of responsibility in terms of our like part of the community you know or our part of the wider structure of society and, um, and just like, it's funny you would say that because I think 
you're totally right, man. Like if you don't seek that out, it will happen anyway, but it's just going to happen in maybe not so much of a positive way where you might find yourself at 32 as a dad or something like that. And all of a sudden like, Oh, I'm not a kid anymore. What does that mean? And I think that's why so many people go through a kind of like personality crisis, you know, because they're just not ready for that. And there's no real clear definitive leap or jump Whereas if you look at more kind of like either archaic societies or indigenous cultures or something like that, there is this real point of like uh, at 13, 14 or whatever, this thing happens as a, a symbol of that. Like uh, what's the saying in Africa? If we don't initiate the men, they'll burn the village down. And I think that's like, uh, obviously it's a metaphor, but I think that's that's totally true. Like there needs to be this point where you kind of understand that you have a responsibility to yourself, to the people around you, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your family. And, um, I th- and we're missing that, you know. I think you can go so far in your life and um, still be this kind of like child in an adult's body because you haven't gone through some period like that, a really formative period. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me actually, just like kind of reflecting as we're talking about it, having, you know, doing my PT qualification at 17 or just 18, um, you know, going through a rough patch and probably not dealing with that at the time. Um, and then basically like straight into running a business and, uh, and then really just like, I mean, we talk about it at, at the Institute where you have to put a bit of a mask on whenever you step into the gym or, you know, wherever you're kind of delivering fitness, it's like outside the world can't seep into that business world. And, uh, and I took that very literally and yeah, went through some of the toughest years of my life, literally at like 18 or 19, starting this business and trying to be this like um, lighthouse of like beaming energy and positivity and knowledge and, and not really maybe dealing with the, like the stuff that I was going through in, in family life at the time and then all of a sudden I'm now teaching the PT qualification and then suddenly I'm 27 and, yeah, I, yeah. and I still haven't like you know maybe had that time to deal with it and uh yeah that that makes a lot of sense actually I'm not sure if uh if you can kind of like do it at a later age or what but I feel like I'm kind of at that point now where I realize that I'm a man and you know but I'm maybe still dealing with issues from that those formative years of uh you know when I was 17, 18, 19 and going through that and really just like masking all of my emotions. Mm. Yeah. It's a pretty, um, it's a pretty interesting topic. What, where do you see, like what cultures do you see as being some of the better or not better? I hate to use that term, but what cultures do you see having a really good initiation process that you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or that's like really trialing or telling of, of the men that come out the other side of that. It's hard to say, you know, like every, there's this sort of like cultural relativity where it's, it's really hard to say if one is necessarily better than the other in any way. Obviously, like we've talked a lot about psychedelics and, and things like that, or plant medicines, whatever you want to call it. And I think those more archaic societies that have a clear transitional kind of period where you have this ego shattering experience, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think it's a much more natural way of being alive but all these cultures are different as well like uh, if you look in the amazon where they're doing ayahuasca and stuff like that like they give a teaspoon of ayahuasca to babies you know it's it's um it's which is from a western perspective that's so bizarre or if you look at like uh native american cultures like uh where there's wachuma shamans like san pedro shamans that's more of a teenage kind of thing 
and everything's going to be relevant mm. to the culture that it kind of comes out of. So, so it's, it's hard yeah. to say which one is better. You know, I think, um, I think we could do a good job of it in the West with just a few little tweaks, you know. Mm. What would you propose? Um, martial arts, you know, I don't know, something like that. Like, I think it's... Um, what does it's it entail good. then? Like, what, 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 do you think, what do you see as like being called, you know, uh, someone has to go through what to have been, initi- like to have this initiation in it, inverted commas? Uh, I think an ego shattering experience, you know, like you need to recognize that you are not the center of the universe. The the world doesn't revolve around you. And ultimately you have a duty to society and a duty to your community and a duty to everyone. And that um, there comes a point where you kind of break away from society and individuate in your teenage years. Mm. But ultimately you have to come back to that as a fully constructed person who can, I guess, be, a constructive member of that tribe or society or whatever you want to call it. I mean, that like, I'm obviously looking at all this stuff through the like lens of my own life. And I think that's where like martial arts was such a positive thing for me because it was ego shattered, you know, like it's, um, it was, it was great. Like I remember the point I can remember my ego being broken and being like, wow, like it's, I really have to change. And then that, went across my entire life you know i just had a different attitude towards life and how i would achieve my goals and stuff obviously you've had a, you've had that experience and you can only probably speak you could only possibly speak from that but that's a quite a physical um overcoming of that ego mm. could you perhaps propose like alternative like you say you know your plant medicines uh <laughs> whereby it is more of a spiritual overcoming of an ego or a um mental as opposed to actually having to be potentially humbled or physically or do you feel like that's a necessary part of it Mm. um yeah i think like i think it's um whatever works you know like whatever works um i've certainly like i i look at these kind of things like uh and i hate using the term plant medicine because i think there's so many like connotations towards it um and it's definitely become very like trendy and a bit pretentious over the last maybe five to six years but that can be extraordinarily beneficial as well. Yeah. Like that was, um, that was a huge pivotal turn in my life too. But I think um, physically, like physical initiations, like the body is tied to the mind and the mind is tied to the body. The spirit is part of the biological organism as well. So I still think that um, like physical events will have a massive translation to your psyche. You know, that's why someone could come into personal training and within six months be a completely different person who walked through the door. Mm-hmm. While that that might have been a physical change, it does affect their psyche and affect their, I guess, what would you say, mentality. Yeah. Um, but it's about what finding what works for you. Like, it's not going to be the same for everyone because ultimately, like, maybe people don't want to go and do jiu-jitsu and wrestle and something like that. But if they went and did ayahuasca, that would be much more relative to themselves and their life and their own kind of journey of healing or growing. Do you think maybe then like down the, like barreling down that path, um, like you say, with your martial arts and I'm trying to think from a, obviously male perspective, having not done martial arts. um, From what I, from my very basic research, which is don't, I wouldn't, I'm not referencing, there's no double blind studies here, but a lot of people that have gone down a martial arts route, I don't, I don't hear or see or meet a lot of men who have gone down that martial arts route who have also done a team sport like and have been you know, heavily invested in both. Mm. You either do, say, a martial art 
or you do a team sport or any sort of ball sport maybe like as you grow through adolescence and you you get to you know between 15 to 20 plus so once you hit 20 you're either doing one or the other it's very rare that you would meet someone that's like cool i do bj day every day and i play footy on the weekend yeah no, it's not bizarre. yeah so so therefore like you say with your martial arts route it's like could that could those who have continued down the team sport or individual sport have that humbling ego experience because potentially there's a especially with the upcoming generation they're built up to not fail or like fail you know no one fails you just you just participation award or whatever the fuck they're talking mm. about these days. Like I'm curious to see maybe how that plays out. And maybe if you could forethought, give give your thoughts on that sort of idea of like, cool, let's say, you know, team sports is one avenue for people to be, for men to be humbled and to have their ego shattered using your words. Martial arts is another ayahuasca or some sort of, um, you know, what's psychedelic in, enlightenment might be another. Say you continue down those avenues, but then you've got this new generation of, of humans who are just like, no, you didn't lose. You just came second in a one V one tournament sort of thing. Like, no, you lost. Like, I'm curious to see, does that delay this ego shattering um, enlightenment that we need? Well, do you think there's a point in um, these sorts of sports, like team sports, ball sports, all this kind of stuff where your weaknesses are so exposed? I think there's I could a point to talk on this. I think, I think for me personally, and this might be different for everyone, every every young dude that plays footy or whatever um, or basketball or soccer or whatever the sport may be it is super delayed i think and maybe that was just me maybe because my ego was so ingrained in in me um that i could never like as you just said cam like your your weaknesses are never super highlighted in that because your teammates potentially bring it up um you know what you're bad at they're good at and vice versa and it's just kind of like this confirmation bias constantly and, uh, and especially if you have success in team sport, like I think that that delays it massively. I never really had that until, yeah, until either running a business or probably more so when I was doing jujitsu, which is only for a short period. But I even felt that myself, that ego death, that ego shattering experience. Where it's like, yeah, actually, you're not as good as what you think. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and these people that have been doing this for just six months more than you are so much better than you. And, uh, and yeah, I just to kind of reply to that, Tom, I think that, yeah, team sport doesn't really allow it as much. I think it really needs to be an individualized thing, like super individuated. You're maybe competing against other people of the same caliber or people of the same age that have been doing it for way longer. And that's the super humbling experience because I don't think you're getting that consistently beaten down in team sport. Like if you are ever like suboptimal, then you can kind of hide in your 22 other te- or 21 other teammates that are playing the game. Whereas in like jujitsu, for example, if you're suboptimal, you get rolled <laughs> and it's just like, and you, you get tapped and you potentially, if you don't tap, then you get hurt or you get put to sleep. Or I feel, I feel like it really needs to be an individual thing, like a, you know, mano y mano um, where you're just like, it's, it's you and it's your abilities versus him or her and their abilities. Um, what do you think about that, Cam? Yeah, I totally agree, man. I think it's um, like the consequence, like firstly, the consequences have to be dire. You know, I think that's where the real growth kind of happens. And um, if, you, if you're looking at this stuff from a kind of like a Jungian perspective uh, of like the hero's journey, like Joseph Campbell wrote a lot on the hero's journey. 
of which is what I really believe this is. You know, you have to go it alone. It's the hero's journey into the underworld. Like, like Peterson talks, like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this sort of stuff of like um, slaying the dragon. And while I'm not a real Jordan Peterson fan, I think there's a lot of relevance to that, which you kind of don't really get much out of team sports because it's so easy to pass the buck of like, oh, that guy messed the pass up. Oh, the wind was blowing. Like, oh, yeah, it would have gone in if the wind wasn't that big that day or something like that. Yeah. There's so many excuses you can make to really not be like, no, this is me. You know, this is on me. I made a mistake. This person was better than me. This person crushed me or whatever, you know. Like, it's easy to pass the buck about it being someone else's fault until someone has got you, like, mounted in a competition five minutes into a six-minute match or something like that. Then that's all on you. You know, and I think that's where the real magic kind of happens. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and as you say, you can just hide so easily. And uh, and maybe you've told me you've had a different experience, but it just I just did not have that same humbling experience as when I st- first started jujitsu, where it was, was. Yeah, I would say it's different. I, I, I'm going to disagree, but like I would say, like for the majority, potentially not if you don't have self, if you're not as self aware. Like you can absolutely, but if you're hiding in a team sport, you're hiding in a team sport. Mm. If you're so self-aware that you can go, no, nah, fucked up. That guy's better than me in a team sport as an individual on the team, even if you won or lost. I, I have had that experience. Um, like I've come off a field in a win and gone, I played shit. I've come off a field in a, in a loss and say I played well. Like mm. I, hopefully most people who have been in a team have played that way or have felt that experience. Not saying 100%. it's as humbling, um, you know, it's, as you, you mentioned, Cam, it's got to be earth shattering. Like it's got to be super overwhelming and I, I potentially it would take a lot longer. Like if you, you know, I have done a fraction of some BJJ and trust me, I got humbled straight away and I'll just like, fuck, this is intense. Um, wouldn't say it was my ego that got humbled because literally I was brand new and I was like, I didn't expect to be, I wasn't, it wasn't a level playing field, but I've definitely had it on a, in a team sport, in an individual sport as well, where you're just like, man, I'm getting, you know, my ass handed to me. And it's when you're young, for me, it was when you're when I was young and had aspirations of being elite. And it was like, just the, the realisation, it's like, oh, I'm so far off the measure of where I need to be. Like, if I want to play at any sort of elite level, there's no way I'm going to get there continuing this trajectory. And that was a, that was a humbling realisation, thinking that, you know, I was a duck's nuts. And then just getting literally your ass handed to you on a field yeah. by just direct opposition irrespective of team result again it, it happens in it um, requires self-awareness um and it would probably take longer than p- potentially a one-on-one or a 1v1 sort of be it a, a physical sport um or you know a mma or something like that or, or a one-on-one sport but yeah i've definitely felt it self-awareness is a good way to put it so it's like you really need that sense of accountability don't mm. you? you really need to be able to reflect on yourself and i guess like your individual part in the wider process of the game yeah big time big time what did you what did you play i played field hockey all oh, right cool the ultimate man's sport <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not Which massive is... here in sa but oh no You're... it's not it's not massive here in sa um, yeah i can definitely attest to that but um in wa it's probably the biggest in the nation so yeah right very huge huge community and culture over there for for field hockey the state the national team play there blah blah blah, blah. so you know you you can go and watch literally the best team in the world play every week wow um so the, the aspirations and the community there and the drive and all that is peak level 
um, and I was not peak. <laughs> Started late, late bloomer, and just did not continue down that path. But yeah, I, I think it's. I, I'm not disagreeing that a one-on-one physical experience is a quicker journey, um, but I wouldn't fully um, rule out, you know, team some sort of team progression or team sport or team something where you're just like, yeah, well, I got humbled. Even in a workplace. I feel like people can get quite humbled and I don't know if they could have this experience, but I can't see how they couldn't. There's definitely opportunity to be humbled in, in a corporate space and go, oh, fuck, I really did not. I'm not at the level I thought I was for this role or in this position or I'm letting the team down as an individual because you're always, well, a majority of humans and men, I would imagine, are like always should be proud of what they're putting forward in terms of who they are as a person and the work they put forward and all that sort of stuff. So when you get found out or caught out, um, Again, self-awareness, as you mentioned, Karen, is that. You need that self-awareness to go, yep, that was me, like own it. Um, might take longer, but yeah, I still think it could be found. I, yeah, I completely agree. And this is what I mean when I'm talking about like, uh, like in the social work literature, they refer to this as like the individuation process. Mm. And that is going to look vastly different for everyone, you know, but it's about taking that passage of initiation or your calling you know, Joseph Campbell refers to it a lot as like the hero's call, the call mm. to action. So maybe that is in a corporate space or maybe it's in a team sport. Maybe mm. it's joining a pottery group or something, you know, but it's finding whatever that little burning thing is inside of you yeah. and following it and having the, you know, like the, the reflective skills to be able to look at yourself and your faults and where you made mistakes and how to improve. Mm. How important yeah. do you think it is to have something that you're like that burning fire, that thing that you're chasing for you is like, potentially you saw how we're just mortal, you know, and we're so finite that you were like, fuck, I have to do something now. I'm just never going to do it. Um, you had that at 19. How important do you think it is? That you've got this end thing that you're chasing. I think, I think everyone needs it, man. Like I think yeah. everyone needs some calling in life, you know, like uh, that's the real basis of meaning. And like, uh, you know, like in the psychological literature, they talk a lot about how positive emotion, not pleasure, but positive emotion is always goal-based. It's in relation to a goal. So I think if you're going to find any kind of thread of meaning in your, you know, other like, and I'm a bit nihilistic, you know, like I think um, it's a very abstract, bizarro world that we live in and you have to make the meaning yourself. Mm. You have to find some semblance of a point. So like, uh, I think that's what goals are, you know, it's just tricking yourself for long enough to think that life has a point and not in a bad way, you know, like that's really liberating. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, I can see how you could be liberated by that, but it could also be extremely depressing. And I mean, that's humbling in itself, but you, yeah. go, you go down that nihilistic route far enough and you're like, well, what was the point? You know, yeah, like yeah. at 80, 82.3 years, I'm going to die anyway, or whatever the average life mm. expectancy, oh, I think it's less than that for a man actually, but. You know, if you go down that route far enough, but then it's also, you see that you're immortal and it's like, well, I mean, the average age of us, how old are you, Cam? I'm 30. Yeah. So we're like, our average age is like 29, 30 between the three of us. So we're probably about a third of the way through our lives. It's like, that's pretty motivating in itself. It's like time is just kind of slipping by, you know, um, I can see how that could be motivating, but I think that having that thing that you can see is achievable in your lifetime and hopefully, well, for me personally, it's lots of short-term goals that I can tick off in the next 12 months to five years, potentially rather than like, all right, in 25 years, I want to have like created a family and, 
you know, and have this like really nice lifestyle or whatever. It's like, no, I need stuff that's way more um, short term than that. Otherwise I'll just kind of lose focus, mm-hmm. you know? Do you feel the same or do you have any, do you have really long-term goals where you like, you know, you have a young boy, Logan, and you really want to make sure that he goes to a nice school or like what, what kind of goals are you chasing? Yeah, well, my goal shifted massively as soon as Logan was born. Like uh, things were really, really different for me. Like uh, before he was born, I was at uni and I wanted to pursue the whole like career academic thing. And um, as soon as he was born, my life just got turned upside down, man. And um, like it really uh, like it's good. It's good to have goals, you know, like I definitely I definitely have goals. I'm always training. I'm always trying to get stronger. Um, I've had a lot of injuries that have kept me off the mats for a while, but I'm just getting back into training and, um, like I love those things and they're a good little segue to positive emotion, but they've definitely taken the back seat. You know, like the biggest goal in my life at the moment is getting Logan to go to the toilet, which is, uh, <laughs> um, like much, much harder than you would think. Like of all these bizarro things I've done, like the toilet training, man, that's like a real difficult that's thing to do, man. Teaching a domesticated primate how to use a toilet man. it's rough so like uh, i definitely have like i'm all like i'm a very goal-driven person you know so i, th- I think it's important to have that stuff mm. otherwise um with the way i grew up i can definitely just kind of slide into nihilism and apathy very easily mm. so i think it's, it's good to have those goals um and i definitely like uh long-term goals like one day i would love to get my black belt you know like not that i think it's even important but it's just a good lifelong goal to have at some point that I know is going to orient me across the kind of span of my life. Yeah. But there's, uh, there's definitely more important things at the moment. Um, and I think once again, that's where, you know, reflection and accountability is going to come into that. Like um, I've recently just stopped working just so I can spend more time with um, Logie, just so I can be at home and do that important stuff. Mm. Mm. I think it is important if, you, if we just go down that like black belt route for a second, I think it's important that you have goals that are maybe like if it was selfish versus selfless, if you maybe have those goals that are more selfish, it's like, no, I've always wanted this. I've always wanted to be a black belt. And regardless if it's important in kind of like commas to you in comparison to like life, a lifelong thing, I think it is important because it's something that you've worked towards. You, you got up to a, a brown belt, I believe. And that's a yeah. very high level. And uh, what was it? Sorry, was purple. It purple? purple belt, and uh, that's a that's a great standard. And you know that's however many years in, and I'm not sure how many more years you think it's going to take. You know, and there's no real like timeline <laughs> for that. And uh, but it could be a lifelong thing. Like you see, 15, 60 year olds getting their black belt sometimes, and and yeah. uh, but I think it is important to have those things, regardless if it's in comparison to like, you know, again, you're a nihilistic bloke, but if it's regardless if it's important to this lifelong mortality, I mean, it's probably not, but it's something that you want to work towards and it's something that's going to keep you on the right track at least for the next 10 years, at least for that long. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. And you can't just be like 100% selfless all the time. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I I definitely have, uh, like I I can feel the priority at the moment is being a parent because I've got Mm. this like, tiny little defenseless boy you know that understands nothing about the world man like uh, and i don't mean this in a mean way but like toddlers are hopeless man they're just <laughs> ridiculous like it's really like funny being a parent 
and you you kind of like recognize like, oh all right all this stuff about me is not that important right mm. now but you still need it you know you still need stuff for yourself you still need your own identity you still need to like uh you can't take care of people unless you're taking care of yourself first you know yeah. it's like uh you kind of both have to have that like uh, what's the metaphor for it um like i heard someone explain once that the, like the the best way a relationship can be is when you both have food because you can feed each other but if someone doesn't have it someone's going to starve you know or both of you are going to starve yeah. so i think it's you have to have those goals for yourself and i also have to recognize that like all right, well, there's going to be a point in my life as well where Logie doesn't need me anymore because he's going to be older or at school or doing whatever he's going to do or an adult, you know, as much as I don't want to acknowledge that he's going to be an adult one day, Crazy. like uh, my life is going to continue then. And maybe yeah. these things that were at the forefront of my life and have kind of gone into the background will be back up in front. And, you know, like everyone needs to do something. Everyone needs their own journey. Everyone needs to challenge themselves as well. Mm. I think people just slip into that that nine to five yeah. kind of mentality so quickly. So quickly. I think again, it's because they don't world. know what that is. Like they don't know what they're chasing. And, and that's okay. Like, you know, like you said, like it, it's important that everyone has it, but not everyone has it. Like not everyone goes out there and goes, yeah, I'm, like I can guarantee I'm 40 and this is what I want to do and what I've always been doing what I want to do the rest of my life. And shit pops up like, travel or fucking pandemics or whatever that, that steers you off course or you know we're just lucky that by the sounds of it the three of us know that we've got a passion that we do enjoy and things that we want to pursue for a very 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 long time uh, but but not everyone has that and that's what the that's why the the slip into the nine to five it's not a slip it's just like well what's the alternative like they yes. don't know they don't know what is the alternative like in uh how yeah if, if you have just um gone through the whole kind of uh well, i guess the social conditioning of like public school high school yeah. into uni get a job out at 21 and then suddenly you're just on this like you know rat race. like a, yeah the rat race you know as much as it's like a cliche it's so true yeah. like mm. i've done the whole nine to five thing before um and it's so easy to fall into it. Mm. Like, it's so easy just to get in this habit of like five days on, two days off, five days on, two days off, five days so on, safe, two days off. It? And like, whoa, yeah. like years have gone by, mm. you know? And if you're not someone who's remotely passionate about stuff or interested in things, like that's not a bad thing either. Yeah. Like, if you look at the, like the Maya Briggs personality test, my wife and I, were, I remember this years ago, we were looking at like the, the person that makes up like 25% of the population um and it's like they just they they like routines they like to do the same things they like to be given direction they are not very interested in talking about abstract ideas like there's a there's a big like a quarter of society is this person that's like well that works really well for them you know and it's like maybe someone like me who has struggled so hard at some point in my life to find a thread of meaning is like uh doubling down on it but someone like that who's kind of come from a family that's good, you know, they haven't had trauma, they've had a good life, they're cruising along. And, you know, that's not to say that's a bad thing that they're working their nine to five and they're happy doing it. But, you know, for some people, we're going to need to dig a little bit deeper for that thread of meaning. I think that uh, the, the perspective or the viewpoint from someone that works nine to five is that those who aren't working nine to five have a potentially a cruisier lifestyle. And I would um, warn that it is not cruisier. It is far more 
um, demanding, especially for those that want to set themselves up long-term. You've got to work when people are not working. Like that, mm. that's the whole idea. Like to be speaking from a fitness perspective, we get people that apply for roles all the time or get in the industry and it's like, I'm, I've got to work. Well, I've got to work five till 10.30 and then I've got to come back and work like four to eight. It's like, well, yeah, that's your nine hour shift or eight hours. You do that four days, five days a week. It's like, oh, but what do I do during the middle? Oh, we've got to write your program and you've got to um, check in with your clients. And it's like, oh, so I'm working 60 hours a week? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you could do if yeah. you want to make it in the industry. So I think it's like people like, you know, they, they, they can work from the beach or they can work from a cafe or whatever. And that's seen to be the luxury life. But while other people are at home watching Married at First Sight, thinking their life's the ducks nuts, um, there's other, other people pushing. Uh, and I think perspective is, is everything. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's that, an image of perspective and you've got a guy on either side of something in between them and it's a six to one of them and it's a nine to the other. So both of them are correct, but it's just a matter of where you're standing. Mm. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing to be wary of because I do hear a lot of people that do work that nine to five grind. It's like, oh, there's you might you're in fitness. That must be you know really really you know your work life must be amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it, it is because I make an effort to make sure that my life and my work are amazing. But I work, and then mm. I live. Like, and and I the time that I get to live isn't as much as you, but I just do more with it because it's so precious potentially. <laughs> The grass is always greener, isn't it? Like people 100%. are so quick to just think like, that must be the life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I look back at the few years that I was uh, like running my own business and as like, and working as well to support it while I started. And like, mate, I was grinding. I was yeah. going so hard. But people, uh, like when clients would come in, they'd be like, this must be great. You know, just like <laughs> hanging out training people all day. Like, well, you know, there's a lot more than just <laughs> training people. But yeah, we're so quick now. to party. So, Whenever anyone says that, like, oh man, you must live the dream. I just agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, to be honest, yeah. You don't disagree. No, yeah. it's like, oh no, no, no chance. Yeah. And you can always trick yourself if you if you repeat yeah. it enough times. Well, to be honest, I actually do. I mean, I love what I do. Like yeah. I seriously have like the best, the best job. Mm. And I wouldn't say it's cruisy, but I mean, I was up at four this morning, which is pretty early, but um, I, uh, yeah, I go in and I see highly motivated people that are there at five o'clock ready to go. And then, you know, I train three groups and then I get breakfast and I can sit at the cafe and do some programming, train another group. And then young Tom comes in and, and, uh, and then I get to say good day to him. And then, uh, yeah. And, and then I got footy tonight and I have footy every night with the two teams that come through. So I, I just totally agree. Like it seriously is like, it is a grind, but I, I feel like if you, yeah, like I seriously love it. So for me, it's not that hard. Um, yeah if the juice I'm is also worth not the squeeze you'll do it you know yeah for sure but i'm also not doing a a job on top of what i do right now you know owning in i don't run the gym but i run three mornings a week um but owning the gym and then doing this snc kind of side hustle uh that keeps me busy enough but not so busy that i can't chase more passions you know more things that i want to work on and i'm just like a hyper like um hyper motivated individual i suppose you know i really want the next thing and i'm like desperate for success not that i'm not that i'm not successful but i'm nowhere near where i want to be and i remember a uh i remember i was watching uh naval um a, a uh i believe he's indian he's a he's a billionaire and and one of the things he says is the two most dangerous things that you can do 
uh, is working nine to five and heroin. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember my mate Ethan telling me about this guy and, uh, and that was one of his first quotes that just like kind of stuck with me. And, and uh, yeah, so true. And I, I swore one when I, um, when I bought this gym that I would never, if, unless it's by my own business, I would never be employed by someone else again. Um, I'm just, you know, there's more to trading like an hour of your time for $35. You know, there's so much more that you can do with, with your time. I think if you have a product that is worth something and you make it scalable, then there's no reason why you can't just like create something, you know? So it was kind of like a long tangent on, I just agree with people when they say I live the dream. I seriously do. Like I'm surrounded by motivated people all the time, whether they're athletes in the gym or athletes at footy on the track. Um, yeah, it's, it's seriously good. Well, isn't it funny that people think of like people always associate with the dream that there's not going to be any work involved, you know, that it's <laughs> yeah, like, that yeah, must yeah. be great. You just don't do anything and it all turns up. It's awesome. You know, but that seems like such a hollow existence to me. Like uh, that grind is where the meaning comes from. You know, once again, positive emotion is associated with a goal. So like, why would you want that? You know, like you, you want to find a goal that's worth dying for. You know, you want to find something that's worth absolutely grinding yourself to nothing over because that's where the sense of worth and achievement is going to come from in the first place. Yeah, 100%. I when I, uh, when I, because I've just had 10 days off, I got COVID. Um, because I didn't have a routine. I mean, for the first four days, I was, was sleeping 20 hours a day. I was ruined. But after that, I just kind of like got into the monotony of waking up at, nine o'clock or getting out of bed at 10 and then just like hanging out and watching YouTube and sleep a little bit. And then, you know, back onto YouTube and then sleeping a bit more. And, but then waking up this morning, I'm like, so motivated. I'm like, finally, I'm back into work. Like I'm waking up early and I'm doing something and I'm, you know, around people and, and uh, yeah, spending 10 days by yourself when you're like, so unwell, like that is pretty rough. Um, because I'm just, you know, I really want that next thing. Like, and I can't do that just by sitting at home. Like there's only so much you can do. There's only so much networking and content creation and post scheduling that you can do, um, you know, when you're sitting at home on, you know, on the computer for 15 hours a day or whatever. I'm like, man, thank God I'm back into work now. A bit of isn't routine. It, it funny how like mm. humans need structure. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm crazy <laughs> for it. But no, and, and I can guarantee for those like, no, nah, I don't need structure. I'm a free spirit or whatever. Just they, they just need less structure. Like every human needs structure. You can't just, wander the realms and and not have that um and it's funny you you notice it so like because i'm you know i'm i'm a very regimented human um i'm sure those that know me will be nodding their heads absolutely um but like it's it's funny as soon as it goes i, used, I remember speaking to a mentor this is back at uni and i go i really struggle with when something comes at me sideways i take forever to get back on that path um and i couldn't think of an example right now but i remember thinking that as 20 10 years ago 23 22 I'm not that old nine years ago eight years ago she's <laughs> um, and it was just like so uh, I knew I knew that it was a problem and we've spoken about this before like like momentum and that sort of stuff but it's it's funny how you have those days or the, you know even holidays in holidays you're just like you're planning and you come out fuck it when I come back to work I'm just gonna have all this I'm gonna wake up at five I'm gonna race out of bed I'm gonna do my yoga go for a run come back it's gonna be 20 past five, I've already done 10 Ks in 20 minutes. Like you just have all this energy to just plan all this shit. And then reality hits. And, and for some, it's like, oh, none of that happened. And I'm back in the group, in the grind. Yep. But for others, it's like, fuck yeah, give me the structure. Like I need yeah. it back. 
Yeah, that's me. Actually, Jordan Peterson, I heard a recent thing from him about this, that the perfect amount of the perfect amount of freedom or the, the perfect level of freedom is not having no structure where you can just go and do whatever because then nothing will happen. The perfect amount of freedom actually comes from a certain level of structure that keeps you in line and keeps you doing stuff like at a certain pace, you know, and I'm like, I'm a big testament to that. Like if I don't have structure, then nothing gets done, you know, but I could be so much busier and, uh, and I get so much more done, even though I've got all this other stuff I have to juggle at the same time because I've got structure and it just makes so much sense to me. And, and uh, yeah, the way he explains it is just perfect. Like it's not having nothing. That is not, that is not freedom. Freedom is actually having some structure, a little bit of structure that keeps you in this groove of doing stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, like even looking at these, the, the sort of people that don't have a real kind of like rigid structure on paper, you know, it's, uh, it's like that saying, um, uh, out of order comes chaos and out of chaos, the secret order. So yeah. even people with like a really chaotic life, it's like, well, that's its own kind of ordering system. It's not like there's nothing. It's not like there's just this vacuum or a void that you're living in. Like uh, one of my best friends that I played in bands with, he's like a real hippie van life kind of guy. And like, uh, we've always been like yin and yang, you know, like I've always just been like, I'm going to get up at 5am and train and then I'm going to have breakfast and I'm going to do this thing. Mm. And that's when I'm happiest, you know, when I've got that, like uh, uh, in sociology, they call it like a neurological grid, like this template for your life that you're going to come to reality with to orient yourself. But yeah. for him, it's like, he just wants to do bits and pieces, but that's an order of its own. You know, like this guy kind of just takes a real jazzy improv approach to life where it's like, well, I'm going to go and jump in the water and then maybe I'll go and busk for a few hours. And then after that, I'll have a coffee and then I'll go and do this thing. But it's not like there's no order, you know, it's just a different way of approaching it. It's a different strategy. And I think like the real difference is that um, like the more open you are, the more you move laterally across ideas mm. versus the more closed off you are, you're going to be much more linear, like up and down versus left and right. So like these super open, free going people, it's like, well, there's a structure. You're just moving laterally across all this stuff and kind of traveling where life takes you as opposed to someone who's going to have a real dutiful approach of like uh, maybe how we all kind of look more at our life of like, this is what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and in a week and a month and in four years and in eight years, but it's still structure. You can't avoid it. Like it's a bizarre thing about humans that we fall into it naturally you know we it's an archetypal thing it's mm. in the structure of our psyche i wonder what we were doing structurally when we were hunters and gatherers i mean i'm sure it's like i mean there's obviously not all right it's uh 7 30 that means we're gonna go hunt the boar now <laughs> yeah, yeah obviously there's none of that but yeah. it's like maybe there's like some other type of um it'll be seasonal time, for time sure yes yeah. they do it sure. off the sun they do it off the weather they go cool we're like the rains just happened. So therefore that means this or like, yeah, they would anticipate based on seasons and weather for sure. 100%. There's a lot mm. to do. Like uh, one of the biggest goals I've kind of got at the moment is growing food. And it's been something that I've been like getting more and more into over the past few years. Um, Cause I also like, uh, I kind of semi grew up with my grandparents that like uh, I spent a lot of time with them and they had like a big property. My mm. granddad like grew his own food, raised his own meat all this sort of stuff. So I grew up around a lot of that sort of stuff. And as I've become a dad, I've kind of like fallen back into it as like, a, I guess looking at like the patriarch of my life and what mm -hmm. he did and how he did stuff. 
And um, like, uh, I've been learning a lot about it. I'm not that good at it, you know, but I'm learning. And you're totally tied to whatever is happening in nature. Yeah. You know, so maybe you're going to be tied more up to more to sun up, sundown and to the seasons and to if there's rain or if there's sun, you know, there's going to be different things to do every mm. day. So once again, we probably look at those hunter gatherer people as like, that would have been great. You were just hanging out, doing nothing, eating berries and sitting <laughs> on rocks and looking up at the sun. But they were probably working their asses off nonstop. Yeah. Drawing you know? on the uh, rocks going, okay, sun here means this now. Like all the yeah. had it down pat, hey, doing their hieroglyphs and sussing it out. <laughs> There's something that like kind of is attractive about that though, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. What is it? Is it you because it's like ingrained in us to just go and like throw, throw spears and stuff or what? I think it's archetypal, you know, I think that's the, that's the foundation that everything else is built on. Like mm. uh, from a Jungian perspective, like he talks about um, like the world tree as this really, really deep archetype within the unconscious. And, you know, that probably comes from when we were just monkeys living in a tree and the tree was what oriented us to the world forever, how, for however many hundreds of millions of years. I don't know much about evolution, but like, uh, I think, there's, a, there's always this, uh, like you could probably look at it in your own lifespan as well. You're always looking backwards at the last time something made sense. You know, like you're always looking back. So when you're in a crisis, you generally are thinking about like past relationships or past jobs you had or past yeah. something that every, like reality was ordered and everything was going well and it's all good. You know, and I think we probably do this on like a, like a macro level, looking back at like, well, nature gave us everything we needed. Everything was plentiful. Yeah, there were challenges, but it all made sense because we were living in the most kind of natural, holistic sort of way, you know? And where I think we're always, there's a part of us that's trying to get back all the time. Yeah, it also, seems that way. Yeah. yeah, it takes away from like the, the corporate structure as well. Like you're, you're, you've got ties to the land or whatever that is, um, which is very innate in a lot of um, Indigenous uh, communities and that sort of stuff, which is why land is so, uh, what's, it, what's it called? Valuable, I guess, because you're tied to that. So whatever heritage, I think Luke, you're from the UK. I'm not sure where you're from, Cam. I'm from Italy. Like we're tied back to that culture and lifestyle. So when you go back to like growing food or something that's so innate, something that's so natural, um, it's like, oh, that's so primal because it's, because it's part of who we reference our identity off. Mm. Um, as opposed to the reason I like to wake up at five o'clock in the morning is purely because I get an extra hour every day compared to those that get up at six. If I do that 365 days, I get 365 extra hours. Divide that by 24, like, you know, you, you're creating a structure for yourself. You're trying to beat something. You're trying to grow and be better than something. Whereas if you do something according to nature, um, it's, it's, you're limited. You can only be so good because you can only get to, you can only get to an end goal. It's a fixed um, variable. It's completely variable, but the fixed nature of it being, you know, weather, mother nature is um, attractive. Mm, mm. I agree. I wonder how important it is. I mean, we're often, where did you, have you said where your, what your lineage is, Ken? Where's all your family from? Um, so like, uh, my dad's side of the family was all English. My mum's side of the family is all German. Okay, cool. I wonder how important or how much difference it makes. So let's use like 
Tom, for example, Italian background, lives in Australia. I wonder how much of his DNA, if any, if there's like a percentage or what, is kind of used to the Italian way, used to that side of the world, used to that kind of climate. And now he's living in Australia. It's like that it's not optimal for him based off of where his, you know, thousands and thousands of years of an, like worth of ancestors are from. I wonder if that makes any difference. I, th- I think 100%, 100%. You know, it's probably not a very trendy thing to say because I guess with like a kind of, what would you say, postmodernist sort of worldview and cultural relativity, we're not going to look as at certain cultures as like better than others. But there's definitely, I think, a natural culture that we come from. Like uh, we've all kind of been stripped from the motherland and we are a biological organism that has sprung out of the organism of the earth. Like uh, I like the term biota like the sum, so some totality of biological life that we kind of spring out of. And I think that's going to affect our psyche. Like, I don't think you can just rip people away from like hundreds and hundreds of years of a collective culture and plonk them in the middle of nowhere. Like we can look in our own backyard and see the effect that that's had on the indigenous people within this Mm. country, which is something I'm really passionate about, but we don't ever really look at ourselves as that's a same sort of effect. Like, could, could we keep this kind of social game going in the same sort of way if we were oriented in the culture that we came from? Like, I don't, I don't think you could. I think, I think culture is something that's like deep, deep within our biology. And you can't just plonk someone else in a geog- You can't put someone else in a different geographic area and sever that connection to where they came from. We're tied to our biology and where we come yeah. from, I think, anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can see the relationship with that. Not that I'm, uh, I mean, I love the cold, coincidentally. I don't know if that's like a UK thing or what. And I'm also extremely pale, which is probably a UK <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, I can see how that would make a big difference, I think. And you can see how maybe if we go down the route of like nutrition and like blood type diets and and what your ancestors were used to, to eating and, and uh, you know, and then there's ethical decisions that come into that as well. Like you're a vegetarian, for example. And, uh, and all of your ancestors probably grew up eating meat, but then you have like the ethics of, um, of that that come into it and like the emotional side of things that come into that. Uh, do you think there's an optimal diet for every person? Um, I don't really know, you know, like I, I really can't say that I've got an educated opinion on it. Like I've read those books, eat right for your type and all that sort of stuff. And at one point I thought that that was a really sort of valid idea, but I guess if you're, like going down generations of biology and you're used to certain stresses within a landscape, like probably it would make sense to me that if, um, you know, like if eating in tune with the season is better for your body, which a lot of people will argue is true, then surely eating in tune with the biological rhythm of generations is also important as well. Like, uh, because certain things grow in certain areas at certain times. Yeah. And if you're coming from that, like I, I think that would be legitimate and definitely mm-hmm. the choices you make would be tied to that culture too. Like maybe if I was, um, I don't know, in the German Hills, maybe I wouldn't be a vegetarian, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. So, okay. Let, we said evolution before. I want to go down this route. We were once, if you believe this monkeys swinging in the trees, um what was the turning point like how did we i mean we're on zoom right now we're all wearing headphones like communicating and we're all in sa which isn't so far but it's instant 
you know, the, the pixels from the camera are like picking me up and they're being shot through the sky somehow. And they're ending up in, in your lounge rooms or shed, or um, you're probably sitting at the dining table right now, Tom, like, how do we go from that to this? Oh man, good question. Good question. In your like opinion. Got, in my opinion, uh, it's hard to say, you know, like I really don't have many like uh, belief systems. I think the best abbreviation for belief system is BS, you know, like it's, um, it's easy to change an idea. It's very hard to change a belief system. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think we always overestimate what we know, even like, uh, you know, all it takes for um, like a fact to become opinion is 10 years. So I, I could see like a lot of different arguments. Like obviously, like we've talked a lot about the whole McKenna Stone Ape theory. You know, when I was maybe 23 or 24, I'd, of course, it's got to be that. You know, that, that has to be it. <laughs> Do you want now, to actually um, explain what that is? Just for bit, I mean, that's like very esoteric. You and I know what that is. Tom, I don't know. I'm not sure if you know what that no is. No idea. But... Never heard of a Stone Ape. Do you mind so, have you heard of Terence McKenna? Rings a bell. So Terence McKenna was kind of like a... I guess you'd say a counterculture figure of the kind of like 70s, 80s, 90s in America, but more 80s and 90s. Um, and he spoke on psychedelics. He was an ethnobotanist and he went across to the Amazon and he was actually like a butterfly capturer guy. And while yeah. he was there, he experimented with psychedelics, ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, all this sort of stuff. So he was like one of the prominent figures in the counterculture who brought this to the West. And he wrote a lot of books, like his most famous book is called, um, what was it True Hallucinations? And it's about his experiments with colossal doses of psilocybin mushrooms. Like uh, McKenna is where we get this idea of a heroic dose. Um, he wrote a lot about that. His whole, I guess you could say his little tagline was five, five dried grams in silent darkness. And um, he, yeah, he was a counterculture figure who brought like uh, psilocybin mushrooms to prominence. And the the stoned ape theory is his idea that at some point um, we as like uh, primates would have found psilocybin mushrooms because uh, they're very easily identifiable and they grow around the bases of trees a lot of the time. So his idea was that when we were... Um, like monkeys in Africa and the rainforest was dry, drying up, we would have been forced out of the trees to find food. And that at some point we would have come into like interaction with psilocybin mushrooms, which um, at high doses um, can induce spiritual experience, psychedelic experiences. And yeah. like his argument was glossolalia, that it will make you speak in tongues. And that that is where language comes from and the development yeah. of language made the brain just massively expand in a really short period of time, which um, like having that experience myself, I can totally, and anyone who's done it, you know, can definitely agree because um, like I've had very bizarre, uh, what would you say, mystical experiences, spiritual experiences. And and I see those as like the foundation of religion. Mm. I think there was definitely a time where shamanism was prominent in human culture. So the idea of the stoned ape theory, that's where a massive expansion in creativity, language, 
would have happened. And, you know, yeah. like there's a lot of things that at small doses as well, like you can get better audio and visual acuity. Like uh, people that microdose often talk about being able to see things better, to hear things better. And mm -hmm. the idea is that if these monkeys were chowing down, they would have been the ones who survived yeah. and that would have created some sort of culture. So like I could see that. And then there's also the argument of like uh, uh, fire, you know, and cooking meat. And so it's hard to say. You know? What do you guys think? That's why I have zero knowledge on that. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely have no idea. I was actually brought up quite religious. So that was my brainwashing until mid-adolescence. Um, and since then, I'm more worried about why we're here rather than how we got here. So, mm. um, yeah, don't really have two cents to give. I'm just like, okay, I'm here now. Haven't really thought about the past. I know the past forms who we are, I guess, a part 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 of that. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't have a I wouldn't have a educated guesses to that evolution. Luke? I agree because uh, I think there's this huge existential problem with it, right? Like. Uh, uh, like Kierkegaard, uh, who's a Danish philosopher, is an existentialist, and he said that the pain of life is, is that um, it only makes sense backwards, but we have to live it forwards. And like you could take that idea further and say that life existentially is kind of like driving down the road with no windscreen and all you've got is a rear view mirror. And the only reason yeah. you would use it is because it's better to use that than nothing at all. Yeah. You know? So there was a time in my it's life analogy, where I probably yeah. like, look back and think of like, well, this is how we got here. But now it's like, I don't know, maybe it's being a dad or something like that. I've, I'm looking forward a lot more than I am kind of like looking backwards with wonder, I guess. I think it's so hard to think forwards by looking backwards because it's seen as so different to what we are now. Like, not, I mean, if we're looking millions of years ago, obviously very different, but even a hundred years ago, like the 1920s, dude, like what yeah, was that, life like then? That progression um, intrigues me more than what happened like like 1900s to now maybe even like that that um in terms of progression i like all history in terms of like isolated moments in time to research and educate but the progression of like we've literally been to the moon what is it 60 i got this maths wrong the other day like 60 years ago haven't been back in, in 60 years or whatever it is um but we've created all x y and z in 60 years like that's not a lot like parents are 60 years old not mine but some are um sorry folks if you're listening you're definitely not 60 um that that impresses me that um rapid speed of intelligence when it comes to information technology like the whole it age basically i completely agree mm. like it's um you know we live in the, and that's the thing we live in potentially the most interesting time there has ever been to be a human like uh, that change from like monkey on the african plains to now you know i feel like that's nothing compared yeah. to you know like late 1800s late 1900s up until now like mm. how strange how what a weird weird time to find ourselves in you know it's so odd like you were saying before with communicating like how are we doing this yeah on this magic screen you know we're all in different parts of adelaide we just communicate like that like, yeah it's bizarre. It's bizarre isn't it the innovation must come from somewhere like our, maybe that's an innate part of the human race is to innovate. Elon. And because, because everything is so intertwined now, everyone is so connected with each other technologically. Now there's such a challenge between people everywhere to be the next Elon Musk or the next 
um, Nikola Tesla or, you know, it's all about maybe that's leveling up, like you say, innovation for sure, but it's a competition. Like it was, you know, going back to the moon landing that stopped as soon as someone got there. Cool. Someone's done it now. What's next? Like, oh, someone's made an electric car. Cool. What's next? Like make it more efficient. Yeah. But what's beyond that? People are already probably developing the next, you know, easy mode of transport. So it's a case of, I think it's less about, like go back to the world wars. They were trying to create nuclear bombs, something that had never been done. So it's all, it's literally trying to um, produce something that we don't even know about yet. And Mm. that's what like, you know, the spear, when that was created, oh, then everyone had a spear. It's like, what about when I get close? I need a sword. What about a gun, like gunpowder? What about um, automatic rifles? What about like that going back to the real primal, you know, fighting over land sort of innovation and now it's an IT age. So what, what's the next, fuck knows, but like, I think it's that, it's, it's a competition. Everything's competition. What's mm-hmm. that saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And like you look at the, there's a socio-cultural kind of background to why these things happen as well. Like you talk about the moon landing. Well, that comes out of the Cold War, you know? Mm-hmm. So all these things, like what's happening in society is also going to dictate what is being invented or like uh, where we go next. And like, it's actually another McKenna thing that he talks about a lot was he, he used to see, um, this is in one of his talks at some point, he talks about like uh, information technology being like a sort of crystalline structure and that like uh, the stress of the biological organism of society of humans is going to reach a point where like you know the collective stress of the cold war sent someone to the moon it kind of reaches a higher level and a higher system of order Mm. so like as things turn up in society and as things get tough like the world war out of that comes all of this innovation so like uh, maybe as you know we're getting backed into a corner right now in terms of the climate and stuff like that so we're going to have to find a way to get past this stuff at some point and maybe out of that stress on the organism as a whole innovation will come you know so i Mm. i guess like there's that element as well the socio-cultural which is like my real passion of like looking at culture and society and seeing how that is affecting where we head where do you see this kind of bursting out into and we're under so much pressure right now and 60 years ago it was the moon landing in which direction do you think it it's do you think it's backwards like maybe we go to our roots or is it so far forwards that we're now delving into like Neuralink and we're, oh. up, we're uploading our consciousness onto the onto the cloud and we can all just like live in this metaverse it's funny you mentioned that because um uh, one of my best friends one of my old training partners i remember we were hanging out um at his his uh, lives on a property in Hardtorf, and we were hanging out on the top of uh, like a little hilltop we just trained out there like in his shed and um, we were talking about where we saw society heading and this is like eight years ago and he was saying like man i feel like we're going to get to this point where there's a real divergent split and there's going to be some people who join a fake constructed world and like people like us we're just going to be doing jujitsu and surfing and blah 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 and i dude i think it's legitimate i think you can see a real kind of transhumanist agenda which is like you look into like ray kurzweil and all these Mm. kind of like technological singularity people and the neuralink which terrifies me you know like i'm this real like organic mung bean kind of person that's (laughs) just like no like you you grow your food you live with nature you train you do all these like archaic primal kind of things and i think like it's so hard to say 
you know, but it's divergent because there's a lot of people looking back and a lot of people looking forward. And some people are looking forward to this like transhumanist, Elon Musk is going to save the world and take us to Mars and give us Neuralink. And there's also a lot of people who are so skeptical of that and are saying like, no, 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 we've got to go backwards. You know, and I guess like I shifted a lot when I became a parent because you start to recognize that like, well, the structure of society is the family and like, uh, it's lots of families that tie in to make a global community. So I'm definitely like, I'm on the other side of the fence, man. Like I would love to get rid of my cellular prison, you know, and just go back <laughs> to living life, man. Like if, if it all kind of fell apart, like I'd be part of that community. I think mm. like I'd be looking to grow food and hang out and do pull-ups or something. But um, yeah, like it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it's going both ways at the moment. What's going to pop first? Like what do you what do you guys think? Where do you think we're heading? I think unfortunately probably towards the technological age. No. Yeah. Yeah. Numbers I mean, speak. That's all. Like just numbers speak. So IT. I I I don't say I agree with it, but I feel like I'm, I'm in alignment with Luke. I, I feel like the IT world is taking over. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely taking over. Yeah. It's a force. You know, you mm. look at the last fifty years of history and and what's happened there's this inertia pushing us towards it mm. you know like it's going to be very very hard to escape and um and those who don't kind of fit into it you know it's not going to be it's not going to be easy like even if you look in our own backyard just from the perspective of australia like uh the digital identity and all this stuff that's being rolled out like it, we're becoming like a kind of like a smart grit you know humans are going to be um like we can barely put our phones down there's a part of it that's kind of like this almost like a symbiotic relationship with technology now where we just can't get away from it. Like we're having this conversation on the internet, you know, like this is our first, this is the way we do it. It's just the way things are. So it's kind of like, uh, like I look at my son and um, like the idea of like limiting screen time or something like that. Like, yeah, you have to do that obviously, but then also like, well, the world he's going to live in, there's this huge push towards technology. Like things are going to be radically different in 10 to 15 years time. And I think you guys are right. You know, like I think there's always going to be these people who are like looking backwards at hunter gatherers going like, wasn't that great? You know, like that are wanting, wanting to go back in that direction, but there's a huge pull towards the technology. Like we, it's, it's hard to detach yourself from it. Like, yeah. yeah. It feels like there's no happy medium. Like it's like you're either one or you're the other. Yes. Like, and you've got to be jarringly either. Whereas I think like the happy the medium was probably like a backhoe or something, you know, like, <laughs> you know, we've gone past the medium yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. 100%. Should we, yeah. Uh, Let's have a quick should pause. We take a quick pause. Great. Yeah, man, speak from the heart. All right, we're back. Um, I actually kind of wanted to maybe make a little bit of a tangent because I know one of the reasons that uh, Luke... We, we, we wanted you on is around sort of conspiracy theories. Um, and I, had a, I did have some questions and... I'm curious about, uh, you're obviously a very educated individual and um, well-read um, and coming from that psychology perspective. So I, I definitely am, am curious. Um, probably the first thing would be maybe like, what would you define as a conspiracy? Like, what is what does conspiracy mean? Um, and therefore, like, from there, what, are some, what, what would be your top few conspiracies that you believe that society, like that you strongly believe in, that society should really take notice of? Um. And this is the thing. I should have a disclaimer as well. You know, like, uh, like I think I'm a, a collector of conspiracies more than anything. Okay. Like, once again, like, I don't think you should believe 
everything. I doubt everything. Doubt yeah. that you even have the capacity to doubt everything, you know, because it's so easy to get yeah. like hijacked by stuff. And um, like, it's such a bizarre culture. Like it's such mm. a bizarre culture. And I really fell into like the whole conspiracy side of things because um, I couldn't go to school. Like uh, when I was uh, like, that was one of these things when I was like 16, I got bashed so badly that I couldn't go to school anymore. So I was doing homeschooling and it was all online. And at the time, YouTube was like not censored, man. And I was like 15 or 16, looking up all this bizarre stuff between classes. Yeah. And um, and I really have always been like interested in that part. And, you know, like Terrence McKenna and stuff like that, you've got to take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Like that guy is like, he's not a, like whatever it means to be a conspiracy theorist. Um, like the, the term itself is constructed by the CIA. And that came out of so many people starting to look into the JFK conspiracy. Yeah. You know, which is like, I think that's the real like smoking gun. Like if anyone's going to look backwards, look back to that because it's shady. Like the whole thing is bizarre. Yeah. Warren report and the magic bullet theory and all this sort of stuff. Oswald saying he was a patsy and then getting shot by Jack Ruby. Like there's lots of stuff to do there where it's like, this does not make make any sense you know yeah. this, this doesn't make sense and that's kind of like i think that's where this whole movement has sprung out mm-hmm. yeah so to define a conspiracy i don't know i guess like uh, the way people see that now is that the the narrative that's provided by culture is um not the correct one you know yeah. like a conspiracy as a word means that you think there's these a group of kind of nefarious individuals conspiring to commit some sort of offense which if you look back through history you know that is history is kind of a Fuller. history of conspiracies <laughs> yeah of people working against each other and revolutions and like you know was the bolshevik revolution a conspiracy well, yeah yeah 100 <laughs> what's that like yeah. you have to the bolshevik revolution so, oh, so like, naive uh, it's the russian revolution where the bolsheviks overthrew the czars which is they conspired you know Mm. they got together in a political movement and they had red october and they overthrew and then communism was in russia until what soviet union collapsed in 93 yeah so that's a conspiracy yeah you know like it's hard to say so what, what are some common common uh like you say jfk assassination i think that's pretty well uh, known uh, as like you know pretty jarring you know a lot of people don't believe the the general narrative what would be some others that you're you're kind of like people need to potentially wake up mm, it's hard to say you know like yeah. I really like I said I kind of don't believe in anything personally but I entertain things because I yeah. find it entertaining yeah for sure um, but what conspiracies um, like is the world like- flat is the world flat? Well, that's yeah. the thing. You've got to look into it. Eric Bay says the world is flat. Like Eddie Bravo says the world is flat. And why are they saying it? You know, it's not like, um, like, and once again, I have, I'm not married to the globe, but I definitely, I'm not sure if we're living on a flat plane or a, a sphere or whatever, you yeah. know, empirically in my life, I would have to commit to belief. There would be a point where my knowledge fails and I would commit to faith on either side. Yeah, you know, because that's what you don't know you believe and what you believe you don't know because yeah. it's two different acts you know it's two different a- actions so like uh, i find the flat earth stuff very entertaining to look at because um it's it's challenged it's not like uh the whole time it's been going on people have been challenging copernicus and um uh who knows who knows where we're living 
what's the rationale for wanting to know the shape of the earth and what, yeah. therefore what's the rationale for hiding or, yes. or lying about it and i was talking to one of my friends about this yesterday because like uh, the way i see it right is where uh, like um we we live in a physical space we are somewhere where we exist we have a sense of being here wherever mm. here is regardless of the shape of where it is but there's also like i think we occupy more of a metaphysical interpersonal kind of space because you don't exist on an island you know you exist in relationship to other people yeah. so the primary world that i think we really live in is the interpersonal world of like getting along with people you know yeah. Um, which a lot of the time this stuff is kind of counterintuitive for. So what is the point? Why does it matter? You know, I was having this conversation yesterday because I've like, um, I haven't spoken much about it, but I was involved with music for a long time too. Like I taught music, I played in bands. Um, so I've been a part of a lot of like cultures. I've always been a bit of an outsider. Like uh, when I was doing martial arts, I always felt like um, I was more of a muso and then I'd hang out with my muso friends and be like, oh, well, I'm a bit more like a sporto guy. And I go and hang out with powerlifters and be like, oh, actually, no, maybe I'm like a, something else. And then I go and hang out with academics and be like, well, I'm not this, you know. <laughs> and so I've always been like this outsider and I've been influenced by a lot of people. So I've got a lot of like real full-on conspiracy theorist friends and yeah. uh, who I love very dearly. <laughs> and um, like it's, we're at the point now where like, what does it matter? You know, like yeah. if, if everyone, like say there is this grand conspiracy, you know, and like they, it goes so far. Some people think that like um, it's a Jesuit conspiracy, you know, and some people think that NASA is this occupational government that are actually running stuff. Like that's the whole Alex Jones line mm. of things that there's like, a, they're actually a shadow government who are pulling all the strings. And um, okay. like, there's so many different camps and they're all arguing between themselves as well. So it's like, let's say the earth is flat, right? The world is flat. This realm, wherever we live, is a flat plane. Like uh, there's this guy, um, Santos Bonacci. And I like him because he's an Australian ex-Muso guy. And he takes a real kind of like spiritual, metaphysical look at this sort of stuff. And he thinks we're living in like a torus field. Like, a, like a, you know how the, we've got like an electromagnetic charge in our heart. We've got a small frequency that we emit. And that apparently comes out of this torus field, which is like, uh, you can see it across nature when you look at the shape of an apple or you look at, it's like this um, fractal pattern, you know? So he yeah. thinks we're living on this like uh, central plane of inertia in this torus field. So let's say we're living there, you know, which I don't think we are, yeah. but we all agree. Everyone wakes up and everyone understands like, okay, this is the world we're living on now. It's flat. Well, we still like, uh, like, you know, Biden said to NATO that Russia is going to invade the Ukraine potentially tomorrow. So like we could be a world war three by the end of the week and the shape of the earth is not really going to matter. All the time. <laughs> you know, like it's uh, so what's the point, you know, what does it yeah. matter? I think there are definitely like um, some things that are worth looking into, like say um, the Gulf of Tonkin, like the Gulf of Tonkin being a false flag, which brought everyone into Vietnam. That's a conspiracy you should look at because it affects our lives and the structure that we live in. Yeah. And like, it's, it's legitimate. Mm. It's legitimate. It was, a, it was a fake attack and it brought us into this war. Or like the biggest one of our generation is probably 9-11. Was 9-11 an inside job? Well, I can't say for sure. But you start looking into the details of it, like and World Trade Center 7, you know, like most people think two buildings came down that day when there were three. 
And that is something that has a real effect, you know, like that affects us. One of the, the main contributors, like, sorry, one of the owners of the World Trade Center is also the dude who owns Westfield. So like the guy who's got a vested interest in Marion Shopping Center also had a vested interest in the World Trade Center's collapsing because they made a lot of money out of the insurance. So it's like, I think there's, there's a point where it doesn't, it just loses all kind of relevance to our, our life, you know? Do you think there will always so be that though? Like there'd be, there will always be two sides. So, it, it, you know, and do you think, obviously there will always be two sides. There's always going to be someone that, that argues against um, the narrative for sure. And it's finding enough of a thread to pull, I guess. Um, and obviously, you know, you see all the WikiLeaks and all that sort of stuff about people trying to be silenced for pulling the right threads. Um, and I suppose that's why we have it. Like we have it to create conversation and create awareness and to not believe what you're fed to believe, not, you know, form your own opinions and that sort of stuff. And that creates uh, more self-aware beings, I guess. It's... Um, mm. Yeah, I think I, a lot of the time it's kind of like a false dichotomy as well. It's like you're saying before, it's this like the two people looking on either side of the six and nine and they'll both, both see different things. It's like, well, there's, there's a sense that in some, way, in, some, in some way things are true and false at the same time. And I think you could extrapolate that further and say they're true, false and meaningless all at once. You know, there, there comes a point where it's like, well, what we know has to have relevance to the life and like the interpersonal life that we live in. Like uh, I could look into all these conspiracies, but it's not necessarily going to make me a better parent or make my squat go up. So like, that's where it comes back to like, all right, well, what, like- uh, They're the only two things that matter, better parenting and better squats. Yeah, 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 the two two primary dimensions of my life. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, uh, like I love the conspiracy stuff, but it's so easy to lose yourself in it as well. You know, it's so easy because it's really like, we want to make that logical jump. Like we, we as humans, it's so easy to, to go for the interesting thing or like uh, with everything that's happening at the moment, like how many conspiracies are flying around about um, like the pandemic, you know, yeah. like I wasn't going to talk about COVID because I find the whole thing super fucking boring, but um, like that free floating anxiety, you know, like I, I've got a lot of friends who are so quick to point the finger and say like, it's all a conspiracy. People are being brainwashed by the government because they've got this free-floating anxiety that politicians are capitalising on. But you could go the same way and say that that sense of free-floating anxiety is also being triggered by people spreading disinformation on the internet. So yeah. it's like, uh, it, it goes both ways and it's so easy to fall into a trap of just taking yourself too seriously and like believing too much of this stuff. Mm. Do you believe what like it seems like? This? Oh, sorry, Kayla. It seems like the... Uh the answer to it, well, I guess the answer to it all in, a, in the form of a question maybe is why does it matter? Like just focus on you, just be a better person. It doesn't matter what the shape of the earth is or, or whatever, or if 9-11 was an inside job, you can only, you can only control what you can control. And as three dudes sitting in South Australia, like what can we really do about that? We're inquisitive mm. beings. Like as, as, in, as humans, we're just inquisitive. We're always like, oh, what's over there? Something rustled. Like, it's just not going to change my life right. unless it's fight or flight. But if it's far enough away, it doesn't really matter. You'll still be curious. And I yeah, guess definitely. we're always searching for the truth. You know, we're always trying to find our own subjective yeah. version, of the, version of the truth. Like, mm. it's a very bizarre human quality in the first place. Mm. But it seems to be this abstract idea that we're always trying to formulate we're always trying to find, and I, you know, with conspiracies, I think there's also an element of being part of an elite club. 
There's like, there's something that we love about that as humans, you know, like you want to train on the best powerlifting team or you want to go out and join the best jujitsu team, or you want to study under the best professor or be part of the company that's doing well. You know, there's something about conspiracies where people love getting in a little niche club of truth mm. where it's like, if only everyone was as smart as we are, they would understand the truth. We understand the truth. We got each, we, we got this right, don't we? Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, like it's this, um, like everyone, is, and this is where I take a very kind of nihilistic view of a lot of this sort of stuff where if you look at like how we exist existentially, you know, we are kind of like huddled together in the dark telling each other it's all going to be all right. You know, like all of these stories we are sharing is kind of just like... I think um, Freud called it, as much as I don't like Freud, he talks about like death anxiety, like the fact that we have where everything we do, all the truth we are trying to search for is to kind of ease us against this constant underlying voice in our head that's saying like, this is going to end soon. This is going to end soon, Mm. you know, and you want that sense of safety or of things making sense and being ordered. Like, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's all good. Cool. We've got it sorted. It's flat. Like, uh, <laughs> we've got it sorted. It's flat. <laughs> I wonder if uh, if it's just to like dampen the anxiety. That's kind yeah, of what we're doing. That's exactly what I mean. You know, yeah. like where it's it's almost like a nice little story, like a fairy tale we tell ourselves. You mm-hmm. know, like I tell Logan stories when he's falling to sleep, and off he goes, man. You know, like I think that's a, there's kind of an element of that that we're doing in our adult life, like like uh, everything in psychological literature. They talk about everything being like social games. And I kind of think that's almost a game, like a, a, we're like pacifying ourselves with these stories of like, it's all good. I've got it under control because we would rather like a horrendous known than an unknown, you know, like I think mm-hmm. there's always something about us that's trying to put everything in a box and get everything sorted. And that's all right. We'll put that in the flat earth box and that in the 9-11 box and that in the uh, like uh, scientific rationalist box. And it's all good. We've got it sorted. You know, it's almost like a certain sense of um, like Jung talks a lot about mythos, a kind of like a, like a, these stories we tell ourselves almost make the mythology of our life. And uh, like you could look at something like World War II as an origin myth that sets the story of what the next hundred years are going to be like. So I think we're always looking for that sort of origin myth within our life, within our community and within the greater world as a whole we all want to know how we got here and how things have ended up the way they are, you know, Mm. and nine 11 is a real kind of like origin myth of the world we live in now, because there's certain things that it sets a precedent for, you know, like, uh, like indefinite wars, like the war on terror. It's like such an abstract idea that can just be continued for so long, but a a lot of it has set the, and it's uh, a lot of it has set the narrative for like uh, what's happening at the moment which is not to say that there's this nefarious group of people who have done that on purpose, but to say that it's like uh, opened up a way within the collective psyche for that to take place. You know, it seems like generally humans in some ways we're getting so much smarter. Obviously we've talked about zoom and what we're doing right now. And someone has created this thing and people are creating all kinds of amazing things, but in other ways, the general population is getting dumber. With all this, uh, I can't remember who talks about it, but who knew that the entire world's worth of knowledge being available for free actually could make people stupider? Yeah. It seems like we're kind of going backwards in some ways and going forwards. Do you think that, and you spoke on um, mythology kind of in a different sense, but do you 
entertain religion, whether that be like the Greek gods or Christianity or similar? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, like that was a real like big part of my life as well. Like I was raised by uh, like real extreme atheists, you know. So to be someone who was raised by an atheist and then have a religious experience, you know, there was a real point of like, oh, how am I going to put this into my life? How will I make sense of this? Um, and I, I've gone through like a real period of looking at different religions. Like I think everyone has a piece of the puzzle. Like I used to go to Buddha house and do the meditations and read a lot about Buddhism. And I think that's half of how I ended up like a vegetarian, all that sort of stuff. So I definitely take a huge influence from religion because it's all archetypal, you know, like uh, there's a lot of parallels between all these different religions. It's all the hero's journey. I guess that's what Joseph Campbell is saying that like, if you like all stories, all narrative everything is a sort of mythology that's why you can look at someone like luke skywalker and frodo baggins and they have the exact same hero's path they're both taken on by a kind of shaman archetype they both go through this thing so i definitely take a lot from religion i think there's a lot to be learned from everywhere like uh and and uh, like uh i definitely kind of rest in um agnosticism you know like i'm because that's my thing i don't think you can believe anything to make the leap people always want to make the leap you know everyone once again it's been part of that elite club some people want to say that um like maybe christians are going to say that all the fundamental knowledge that you need to understand the universe is in the bible and maybe a communist is going to say that all you need to understand the world is in dos capital but if you like look at those books a lot of people argue that like uh, Dos Capital is basically the Christian myth just in sociological jargon. So it's the same story that we're kind of repeating over and over again. But everyone's got a piece of the truth. So I think there's like in this kind of modern day crazy scientific world that we live in where like, uh, you know, philosophical rationalism is the doctrine that everyone follows. And it's because like people will argue that science has become scientism to some extent of it being the fundamental like mythos of explaining the world i still think you can draw draw so much from other stuff especially in terms of that thread of meaning you know finding the meaning in your life making sense out of things because the human life is not um rational it's chaotic it's painful it's extreme you know it's very hard to be a mortal being so I think that's what those stories are there for. They're there to make sense out of things. Like, uh, I think we should all think more about religion. And um, there's like, p- people will make comments on this. Like uh, this guy, Rupert Sheldrake, he's like a developmental biologist. And he, he's got all these theories about like morphic resonance and stuff, really interesting guy. And he had been like a hardcore scientist for 50 years before he became a Christian. And he was actually practicing Hinduism in India when he was um, studying stuff over there. But he thought that it would make it easier for him to understand this stuff because it's from his genetic background. And now he's like a, a Christian, you know, and he's still a scientist, but that's kind of his mythos, which he uses to understand his, what would you say, existential experience as a finite being. Mm, yeah trying to find meaning i suppose that's that's the thing and and going more further down that kind of mythology route of of people being maybe not as 
as able as what we once were. I mean, if we look at like Egypt, for example, and what kind of things they were doing, if they did actually build the pyramids, if it was in that age of um, however many thousands of years ago, how many 10,000 years ago or 11,000 years ago, whatever they say, if it was actually built then, like that's amazing. And, uh, and modern day uh, engineers still can't really figure out how they've done it. Mm. And it's like, there's a big difference between the acquisition of knowledge and critical thinking. You know, like I didn't realize how much of a dummy I am until I did a critical thinking topic at uni and it completely changed the way I view things, you know, of like you would go through like a, I was doing a lot of like critical thinking, getting the textbooks and going through the exercises and being like, oh, wow, I really messed that up. I really didn't like if I like thinking is a skill kind of in the same way that jujitsu is. It's a, it's a set of skills which you need to have to be able to understand the information that's presented to you. So it's kind of like uh, you can have all this food, but it's not necessarily nutrition. You can have all this information, but you're not necessarily thinking about it in the correct way. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Difference between listening and hearing sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the difference between knowledge and intelligence as well. Mm. And relevant knowledge, you know, like we've got all this stuff, but in terms of the interpersonal ways that we live our life, we're starved. People are more depressed than ever. Mental health is worse than ever. Like there's also this kind of like existential part of living our life now for a lot of people that is hard, you know, like people are killing themselves. Like yeah. I'm sure that if you looked back thousands of years ago, suicide is not going to be like, a, like more people have died by suicide than by um, everything that's happening now, apparently in Australia. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's like uh, we've, we've got all this stuff and we've got all this knowledge but in terms of that kind of like metaphysical human interpersonal world that I was talking about before, like, what is that giving us? How is it making anything better in some mm. ways? There's balance, you know, everything is always going to come back to deliberation. And I guess that's where religion ties into these things because something like Buddhism is just telling you to reflect, think, slow down, breathe, reflect. And um, I think that's kind of the foundation of everything, deliberation. Mm. I was having a conversation with someone on the weekend actually about you can tell in a strange way people that have the ability to reflect on themselves oh, and those 100%. that don't. And it almost, it like deepens your person somehow. Like the ability to look back on things just like opens up gateways to be able to communicate more effectively or learn from your experiences. And as you said, thinking is a skill and reflecting is a skill and you have to practice it. And, uh, and I think that that's how you get the most out of every situation. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Like that's obvious as I'm saying it, but you can really tell the difference between people that reflect and don't. That's where growth is going to take place. Surely. Like mm. even from, uh, I guess a lot of people that are going to listen to this is, uh, from like a health and fitness kind of thing. So it's like, uh, you know, if you banged out a set of squats, how are you going to get better at it without thinking of where you went wrong? Like mm. without deliberating on that kind of that session or that block of training or that whatever, you know, like I think it's, um, it's very easy to get so caught up in the active element of living our lives of doing stuff, but it's much harder to find time for the passive element of reflection of stopping. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. And, I think that 
one of the big differences in people as well is not only that reflection, but there's people that everyone's a child, essentially, you know, we're only alive for so long. And there's people that know they haven't got anything figured out and people that think they've got everything figured out and, you know, and no one really has it figured out. You know, even if we look back through the, the eons of like human history and where we went right and where we went wrong and we can look forward and, and potentially try and have some kind of like forethought as to where we're going and how we can, you know, alter this trajectory in a positive way, but no one's got to figure it figured out, you know, no. so you can really only look inwards, I suppose, and reflect on your experiences and then pass that experiential understanding onto whether it be literally your own child or the people around you and then collectively have a greater understanding of humanity. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, like you brought up Egypt before and I think it's so like, uh, like I was saying before, we're always looking backwards. And I think there's this part of us as a society that's kind of looking back now at ancient knowledge and thinking like, uh, like, wow, they, these guys must have had it all figured out. You know, like I'm really interested in, in old archaic societies, but it's, um, and I think Egypt, like we look back with this kind of superstitious view of them as like they ripped out the hearts of the dead through their nose and all this sort of stuff when really they're talking in allegories and they were a culture that put their best minds to the problems of life and death for millennia but they could have got it all wrong man you know like no one's really got any idea it's a one-way journey and no one knows what's on the other side no one has any idea you might get some like and that's like i think a big pitfall of this whole kind of like plant medicine psychedelic movement as well it's like well, this is a cool reference point and it's cool for growth and learning, but we always have to have that sense of humbleness and deliberation to look at ourselves and just doubt that we know everything or that we can make any sort of like uh, statements about reality in any way. Like Buckminster Fuller used this saying that, um, oh, what did he say? Uh, the universe is non-simultaneously apprehended. And what he means is you can't know the universe or reality as a whole because we only experience it in a little finite slice. You know, we experience everything through the nervous system. And that is also going to be filtered through our uh, preconceived ideas, prejudices, our, um, our belief system and all this sort of stuff. So by the time we make any sort of judgment about the world or life, we're so off the path. You know, the map is not the territory. We can formulate these maps in our head of how we think the world is but the territory is something else entirely. You know, so how can we make any real statements with any legitimacy about the way things are? You know, and then you come back to that interpersonal world where the only things that I can say are true is like, well, I love my son, you know, and um, like, I'm going to go to bed tonight. There's like some things you can say, but mm. we often are just blundering into metaphysics all of the time. You know, we're often making like meaningless statements. And that's why I think it's like you can get so caught up in knowledge and so caught up in stuff. And as like someone who's always tried to identify with being like the learned kind of well-read person, you know, it wasn't until I got to 30 that I realized like, oh, wait, that's kind of like a crock of shit. You know, <laughs> like it's kind of pointless. Yeah. If you, were to, everything. if you were to know one thing for certain, what would it be? One thing for certain about history maybe human history or, you know, exactly how we went from monkey swinging in trees to talking over zoom. How to get <laughs> you know, on the toilet. 
Yeah, oh, dude, I could get Logan on the toilet. Or get the secret sauce for that. Did uh, did Hitler go to Antarctica, or if aliens exist, or the shape of the uh, the world, or the Earth, or whatever? If you were to know one thing for certain, hundred percent accurate, what would it be? Well, we've talked about this a lot, and this is just the thing that I'm interested mm-hmm. in at the moment. But giants, man, it sounds so stupid. Like it's one of these like stupid. It's not even a conspiracy, you know. Like this is another thing that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. That it's just like it's not popular culture, so people kind of don't know about it. But I've been massively interested in it recently of if there were giants or not. And there's like a stunning amount of information where you're like, "What? Excuse me." Like, uh, what has been happening with that? And for a while, it was like Egypt. Like, I was really into Egypt. And I really would have loved to have known, like, how long has it been there? Because that's also a contested thing, too, mm. you know? Um, so we can't just, like, gloss things. over the uh, the Giants thing. We have to go into this. We have to go into Giants, yes. Okay, so at some point, there were really big people walking around. Potentially. Or were they flying around? <sighs> Who knows? Who knows? Were they, but- were they big and hairy? I mean, we don't know that, obviously, but... Well, we might, you know, like, there are all these tales, like, and and this is, like, written in colonial diaries and stuff like that, and there's records of it with the Smithsonian in America, that there were tribes of Native American red-haired cannibal giants between seven and nine feet, you know, like, this is, it's everywhere. It's a scary man. It is, it is. Big gingers just running around. Cannibals. Looking to bite your head off. Massive, angry, cannibal gingers. Dude, that is nightmare well, fuel. There's pygmies, so you know it, it adds up that there should be something on the other end of the scale. Yeah, and with the pygmies thing, it goes even further. Like there's um, dwellings that they've found in Scotland of people that were potentially like two to three foot tall. You know, like these tiny little mound yeah. building cultures. You know, there's um, there's a lot there's a lot of interesting stuff on it, and it's not really conspiracy stuff. These are like uh, non mainstream archaeologists looking at the records of the Smithsonian's and stuff like that. And there is a real reasonable reason of why this stuff would be covered up too. Yeah. So like uh, redhead giants, man, look into it. (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. And and seriously, I'm going to have nightmares about that. (laughs) Because they're redhead or because they're giants. Adam, if you're listening right now, I'm just imagining you as a, as a nine foot tall human just chasing after me. He's, uh, my One of my only ginger friends and he's extremely redheaded. <laughs> a recessive gene. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe. All right. Yeah. We're going to... Uh, yeah, that was unreal. I think we can leave this one here for now. We definitely have to go down further. And this is not the last time that we'll have you on the, uh, the TLDR cam, but um thanks for the chat man we're really only scratching the surface of some of the uh the giant redheads and and what we wanted to go down actually i was wearing my nasa hat today just for the for the yeah i wanted to go down the uh the shadow government was that the term you used yeah yeah people think it's an occupational government or a shadow government Mm. you know like and, and the big argument is that nasa is an ancient hebrew verb for deception Ooh. yeah i've heard that actually. <laughs> i have heard that and it has to have the ooh at the end <laughs> <laughs> well thanks no. very much man i've uh i've definitely learned a lot and i i look forward to continuing our conversations um through instagram dms as we talk pretty much every day about stuff and it's so interesting and you're one of the most well-read dudes i've ever had the opportunity to talk to man so i appreciate it a lot oh and, man uh, I, and we'll I have to get you back it. on and, and like I was saying, in the interpersonal world of human stuff, dude, you're one of the coolest people I've ever met. With. I've always had so much respect for you and how you handle yourself. 
And um, I'm so glad we've been able to get together for a chat. And to everyone that's listening, the few people who are listening, I apologize for all the ranting. I had three shots of espresso in my son's <laughs> Peter Rabbit cup before I yes. came on here. And I'm in my shed sweating buckets. Uh, <laughs> it's fine, man. It's literally a weekly occurrence for us. Where yeah. I'm, I don't know how many shots of have, uh, caffeine I've had today, but it's quite a lot. So. I'm buzzing. I'm buzzing. No, but it's it's, um, it's been awesome to come talk to you guys, man. I really have appreciated it. It's, um, it's been we'll do it again, man. Don't worry about that. Sweet. Well, well, thanks very much, Cam. I appreciate it. As always, thanks, Tom. Cheers, mate. And we'll see you next time.